Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 49 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. This is the first podcast episode of a series of episodes um, featuring listeners of the Everyday Buddhism podcast. This first episode features uh, podcast listener David Farley. If you listen to episode 46 with Greg Creech, I mentioned David and read just a little bit of his article about uncertainty. And so I thought an interview with how David coped and is coping with the pandemic would be a good way to start this new series of podcasts featuring podcast listeners. So keep your emails coming. Let me know how you've coped and how you are coping. Um, have you been and are you using any mindfulness meditation or other spiritual or Buddhist practices to help get through these times? Keep those emails coming. Uh, you'll get a sense of uh, what we might talk about if we feature you on uh, one of our next uh, episodes in this series when you hear us talking, hear me talking uh, to David Farley today. David Farley is a New York-based writer with a focus on food, travel, and Buddhism. He's also a certified meditation teacher. His writing regularly appears in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, uh, Newsweek, National Geographic, and the BBC, among other publications. Farley is the author of two books, one, Underground Worlds, A Guide to Spectacular Subterranean Places, and two, An Irreverent Curiosity, In Search of the Church's Strangest Relic in Italy's Oddest Town which was made into a documentary by the National Geographic Channel. So I will post links to David's website and articles in the show notes. I think you will very much enjoy um, our conversation, David's insights about how he dealt with uncertainty um, prior to the pandemic and the pandemic, and how he talks about it as if it's like dancing and how he felt well-prepared for coping with the pandemic due to his previous practice and understanding of dancing with uncertainty. Despite being a food and travel writer living in the initial ground zero of the pandemic in the U.S., New York City. So without any more discussion on my part, let's get on with a conversation with David. So as the months of the pandemic drone on and on and on, continuing with its uncertainty, finding places of peace has become an all-important focus of life, uh, for me anyway, and I got to figure it's for you too. Um, so as I shared with you at the end of the last short episode about building a resilience bank, I thought it might be helpful to reach out to podcast listeners and ask them to share some of their own personal coping, support, and resilience building practices or activities. 
they have incorporated in their lives that have helped them then walk through the troubled times we're living in. Um, hopefully these are Buddhist related if possible, or at least spiritually related if possible, but it could just be daily activities that you think are very helpful. Um, you know, like uh, connecting with nature in, in, in a certain way in which you do that or uh, a different kind of exercise that you incorporate in your life. That's okay too. Whatever, I, I guess it's, it's whatever gets you through the night and day. So um, you, you guys um, connect with me and I'll invite some of you to be guests on an upcoming episode. I will again share how to connect at the end of this episode and also post details in the show notes. So this is the very first episode featuring an Everyday Buddhism podcast listener, David Farley, who I talked a little bit about in my intro and who actually I talked about in a couple of uh, episodes prior to this with, uh, with uh, Greg Creech um, as when we shared a bit of his our article um, called The Relief and Uncertainty Now Muses One New Yorker, which was uh, published in Newsweek. So if you didn't catch that article, uh, there's a link to it in that uh, podcast recording with Greg Creech. I think it's episode 46. I could be wrong. Um, and I will also share other uh, links in, this, in the show notes to this too. But anyway, after David shared that original article with me, we sort of got talking on email and he, uh, he shared another article with me that is, was sort of the, the uh, in, uh, inspiration to do this and to ask other, other podcast listeners to say what's going on with them. Um, in this article, it was called, Is It About the Journey or the Destination? And it's on his trip out website. That's a website, right, David? Yes. Okay. Um, so um, in a recent article, he shared with me, he asked that question, what is most important, the journey or the destination? No, this is not a Zen Cohen, although it could in fact be a Zen Cohen. So we will make play with that a little bit. But as a travel writer, David is a travel and uh, food writer and uh as a travel writer, I think journey is a comfortable metaphor for David to use. And it's also a good one for us to launch this conversation on our seeming missing future given to us by the pandemic. And actually now we've got a lot of add-on traumas here. But um, so with that brief or not so brief lead in, I want to welcome David Farley to the podcast. Hi, David. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Wendy. Thanks. It's really an honor to be here as a, someone who's listened to the podcast from episode one. Wow. That, that was quite a while. That was a couple of years, I think. Yeah. Uh, did you find it at episode one or did you happen on it later on? I think I found it at episode one. It just, I, just so I didn't realize that podcasts were on Spotify, which I was a subscriber to. And I just one day had this light bulb moment where I thought, hey, I could listen to like Buddhist podcasts on Spotify. And so I just typed in Buddhism and I found about a bunch of them and then sampled some and saved some and didn't save others, the ones I liked. And yours was one of the ones that I liked. And I think you had just done one episode. 
That, that's amazing. You got right into it. That's great. I love hearing these stories. Um, that's good. And I think you also are a subscriber to my colleague and friend, Noah Rochetta's podcast, Secular Buddhism. Yes, he's, he was one of the five or so Buddhist podcasts that I saved. And then I listen to still to this day, every episode. Which that's pretty cool. There's five of them. And two of the ones are Bright Dawn um, alumni. I think that's amazing. So there we are. Um, before we deep dive into the questions of whether it's the journey or the destination that is most important, could you talk a little more about uh, your personal involvement with Buddhism? How you, well, how you discovered it, how you found it, and then uh, up to, in fact, what your current practices are? I can't actually pinpoint the moment when I first felt kind of um, exhilarated, if you will, by Buddhism, but or tickled by it. But somehow I, I only remember feeling that somehow this all made much more sense to me than anything I'd ever heard before. Um, and so I think I was living in San Francisco, going to graduate school in history, and I somehow stumbled upon a Tibetan Buddhist center that's still there, I think, called Seichen Ling. Mm -hmm. And so I started going to um, regular, like one hour long meditation sessions there, going to lectures all the time. Whenever the venerable Robina Corton came to town, um, I was always in the front row because she's really entertaining and, and enlightening as well. And so, so I, then I, and I started meditating at home regularly. I had an altar. I was really into it. A few years later, I moved to New York City, where I live now, and I somehow I thought for me to do to do this, like I can't do it on my own because if I meditate regularly on my own, I'll talk myself out of it or something. <laughs> yeah. So I need to go to a place that forces me to do it, and um, I never really found that place. But a few, fast forward a few years, and you know, I got back into Buddhism, and um, I'd say over the last fifteen years, I've kind of gone in and out. But it's been the last few years now that I've um, really dedicated myself to it. I, um, I was meditating at a place in my neighborhood. I live in Greenwich Village. Uh, there was a place here called Mindful, M-N-D-F-L. Mm -hmm. um, you know it's cool because it doesn't have any vowels. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so I found that it's like a meditation studio. And so I became a paying subscriber or member, like going to a gym. And I would just go there and meditate every day. And I found that because of the peer pressure of having to meditate with a group um, and also having to pay for it, it forced me to not only go, go every day, but sit there the whole time, like for the 30 or 45 minute session. And so that right. was great. Um, now, unfortunately, Mindful is closed because of the pandemic. I mean, I think they like went out of business. And uh, so now I've, now I've been regularly meditating at home. It's great. And I also went on to, um, to get a certi cert certificate in teaching meditation from the Nolanda Institute here in New York. Um, so I'm technically, I'm a qualified meditation teacher. Although since I finished the program last year, I've mostly just been teaching family and friends. Yeah, but that's great. And, and how's that working out? I mean, did they respond in a positive way? Did, did it make a difference for them? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of interesting because everyone always has the same complaints and questions about it, you know, like, you know, they say, oh, I tried it for five minutes and it doesn't feel like it's working for me. <laughs> and I say, well, the fact that you tried it means it's, you were actually meditating because, you know, there's this misconception, which you know about too, that, that when people see people meditating, they think they must be all blissed out and on. Yeah. 
some kind of natural high or something. And that's not the case. We're, you know, even lifelong meditators, even maybe the Dalai Lama or, or Thich Nhat Hanh, they're even sometimes struggling with thoughts in their head too. Yeah, and actually the, the point is never to get rid of the thoughts. The point is to to watch the thoughts come and go and just not get involved or, or as uh, uh, um, um, now I can't remember who said it. Um, um, uh, Suzuki Roshi, yeah. Suzuki Roshi said, um, I think it was Suzuki Roshi. My, I'll double check, but I think it was, said, uh, you know, um, leave your front and back doors open, you know, and watch your thoughts come through. Just don't invite them for tea. Um, yeah. And I always like that. That's exactly because, it. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, I think when people learn that it's much more about just watching, not just thoughts, but like uh, sensations, you know, and uh, um and all all sensory input, you know, which is essentially consciousness, just watching, just being there, observing consciousness in in a, in a in sort of a wide, non-engaged way, if, if that's possible. People, and it is possible because people I that I teach, and I'm sure you've had this experience, are shocked that that's what it's all about, and that they can actually do that. Right. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, and yeah, they, sure. You, you, you know, you jump on that train of thought and you follow it down and all of a sudden you realize all you're doing is thinking again. But the minute that you realize that you're thinking, well, then there you go. You're meditating again. And so it, it's uh, I'm sure you've had that rewarding experience where they said, wow, I didn't know it was like that. Right. Yeah, exactly. And there's there are also like other random things that happen to you when you're when you meditate a lot which is like um sometimes i'll have like a really profound moment of clarity uh sometimes i'm i'm struggling with a dilemma about what to do about something and i don't know and then when i'm meditating a thought will you know come in through the back door and before it leaves the front door um it'll be it'll just it's like hit me over the head like oh it's so obvious now i now i know what to do <laughs> and I, you know i think that's also because when i'm when you're meditating there, there isn't a lot of other um stimulation for your five senses and so like if i'm thinking and i'm walking on the street in new york city i'm hearing things i'm smelling things i'm seeing things and it's kind of you know clouding my my brain and my decision making but if i'm meditating there's nothing else going on except for me you know you know uh being conscious of the thoughts that are, that are in my head and so sometimes a, a thought will come through re related to some, something that i'm really like i have a dilemma on and i'll just be like oh my god Yes, this is the direction I should go in. So that's, I find that really helpful. You know, that's the, you know, I'm, I'm sure people have, are aware that there's like different kinds of meditation and two of the most common are uh, shamatha or clear, clear abiding. You just sit there and be, try to be peaceful. And then there's the vipassana, which is more about being aware of, sensation, sensory input, and that sort of thing. But it's Vipassana is, is, is really called insight meditation. And it's exactly as you described. Um, it's where you can actually get insights, you know, be, and, yeah. and, and, and I, I, I don't, I've all, I'm, I've always wondered why they call that, how that worked out to be that shamatha is just clear abiding and Vipassana is insight because 
I'm wondering if you can get insight when you're just sitting there and clear abiding, but <laughs> um, that's, I think that's an everyday Buddhism question. It shows that I don't really know what I'm talking about sometimes, but, um, but, but the, the, the funny thing is about that is like, uh, there's so many things that can happen in meditation, but I think too many people expect that things will happen, but generally things don't happen. You're just observing things as they are. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, pop culture has presented meditation in a kind of unrealistic way with some kind of like um, sadhu or holy man meditating on the top <laughs> of a mountain and he looks like, you know, completely blissed out and, and people expect that, oh, I, I guess that's, I'm, I'm not that holy man or holy woman, so I guess it's not working for me. Yep. Yep. And that's true. And, I, and that's why, you know, that's why I so love what's happened over the years where, um, bo- you know, Part of me has, has hates this and part of me likes this, like the sort of mindfulness culture, you know what I mean? Um, where mindfulness is taught as a way to, you know, that taught in, in corporations as a way to make their employees more productive. And, um, and it's just everywhere. And it seems like anybody's teaching it. And um, there, part of me doesn't like it because I think it, it, uh, it tends to, um, I don't know, downplay where mindfulness and meditation came from, which is rich in the the rich teachings and practices of Buddhism that are go beyond just meditation. But the other part of me loves it because it's open to everybody. Right. And the more it's open to everybody, I think the, the more that sort of uh, that, 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 uh, that, that stupid thought that, or like you said, the cultural icon of the, 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 the holy man in, in pure bliss as being what meditation is goes away. And I think it's going to go away faster now in the pandemic because, wow, you know, all, almost all Buddhist meditation centers, Buddhist uh, liturgies, everything are online now. I mean, any day you can catch about two or three different traditions, right? Yeah, it's true. So the pandemic has helped that. So we're, we went on and on, but I knew we would because when we talked before, I could tell that's how it was going to go. <laughs> but but, but um, we got to get back to that question. So is it the journey or the destination? Right. I mean, I pose that because I'm a travel writer. And so I'm always on a journey <laughs> frequently, yeah. pre-pandemic anyway. And um you know, it's something that like literally like tra- people who like to travel like talk about. But this was sort of a trick question because it's neither the journey nor the destination actually. Um, you know, I, I, this was partly inspired by a talk I heard um, the philosopher Alan Watts give. And um, you can look it up on YouTube. I think it's, I think it's, um, it's, it's under the title, Life is Not a Journey. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we like to, we, you know, we like to use the, this phrase, life is a journey, because it, it's kind of, you know, the word journey is sort of drenched in wisdom and, um, and, you know, it implies some sort of travel and everyone loves to travel mostly. But, you know, as Alan Watts said, like, you know, it's neither, you know, that this implies that there's like an, that there's a, a beginning and an end. But right. really like, and, and also it's, it's imbued with all kinds of elements of time. And really, as Alan Watts said, it's more like a song. Life is, should be more, seen more like a song and a dance. Like maybe we've been, maybe we've been looking at the, at, at the time span of our lives completely wrongly. 
And if we see it more as a song or a dance, then it, it sort of gives us the freedom, the agency, the personal agency to stop and kind of smell the flowers, you know? Um, you know, because if, if life is a journey and then there's a destination, what's the destination? It's death. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe it's a healthier way to look at life to just um, just think of it as a song or a dance because it's all, we don't really listen to music for the end of it. We don't right. really do a dance for the end of the dance. You know, we d- the dance is the point of it itself. And, you know, if, they were, if, if it was about the end, then, co- you know, as Alan Watts says, composers would only write the finale of a song or they'd write really fast songs so they could get to the end. But that's not <laughs> the point. It's for engrossing yourself in the song and in the dance in the moment. And that's the key phrase is living in the moment. And so that's what you're doing when you're in a dance or you're really living in the present moment. Yeah, you know, I, I, uh, I think, you know, I said something like this too, and, and I don't, I don't, I don't, in, in a recent podcast, and I'll, and, and I'll, I'll share that with you later. Um, actually, it wasn't in a podcast, it was in an article that um, I was quoted in um, for Glassdoor, and I'll share that with you later about dance. And this was before I even got your article about dance, um, and that I said, living in pandemic time, which is what I keep hearing about pandemic time because people are really so lost and it's sort of like time is what keeps them centered right um it's Mm -hmm. like i I gotta do this at two o'clock i I gotta take the kids here at four o'clock uh i i got a meeting at 7 30 and so it that makes life sort of like um like you're aware that you're actually kind of living life and in pandemic time um, even if we're working and we have projects and deadlines and stuff, or even if you're homeschooling or now, even as some things open up, you're actually going to work or going to school, you know, pandemic time has, I think, shifted our reality so much um, that that it, it, it's crazy, really. And, and um, the the crazy shifting is sort of like dancing, really, like you said. And it reminds me of what, you know, Mark Epstein, um, he, he wrote this book called Advice Not Given, A Guide to Getting Over Yourself. And he said, if we can be open, we find that life's unpredictability is full of interesting and invigorating challenges. These challenges engage us in unexpected and unanticipated ways and allow for the freedom of unscripted responsiveness. Right action, he said, is more than just a reaction. It springs from an attunement to the moment that the, that the confines of convention obscure. Now, I like that because it, it really opens up right action, you know, part of the Eightfold Path to something beyond an edict or rules. I love the phrase unscripted responsiveness because that's really like dancing, isn't it? And it's also like travel. Um, which, by the way, David, I'll share with you, I hate to travel. <laughs> okay. Come I know on. you. No, hate you, hate it, always have. Um, well, I mean, what type of, I mean, I, I, hate, I hate the act of going from point A to point B. Right. But I love being in a foreign destination. So, you know, I also don't like travel, like getting on a plane and eating the gruel that they feed you and the person in front of you leaning way back in their seat. You know, I hate that. I, hate, I despise that. But- but, you know, it's all about the destination. You know, when I travel, I like being in the destination. Yeah, it's true. And it's like, I guess, um, 
you know, I'm not as flexible as some. Um, <laughs> and, and so I, and so it's sort of like that uh, unscripted responsiveness. Maybe I'm not a great dancer to unscripted responsiveness. <laughs> um, travel and being in a destination that I don't know is all about being able to be responsive to something I have, I can't anticipate. It's unscripted. Um, and, and I guess it's sort of scary for me. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Um, That's, you know, that's, that's kind of what has inspired me to write some of these articles that you were talking about earlier, like the the one, the uh, relief of uncertainty for Newsweek and then the journey or the destination for my own website, tripout.online is they were kind of inspired by the pandemic and the fact that we were all kind of stuck here. And, you know, we, the, the pandemic has kind of unveiled this reality that, you know, the reality that we've been living all along, but we're kind of hiding from yeah, is, that, exactly. is that there is, there, the future is kind of an illusion and certainty is also an illusion. You know, we've been living with uncertainty all along, but in March and April, everyone was really freaking out because of uncertainty because they didn't, you can't, you couldn't imagine your life a year from now, like we could before. And that, right. gave, that gives us some kind of comfort. And I thought, if there's anything we can take from this terrible time, it's that maybe we can get used to living in uncertainty a bit. And I think that's, in a, in a perverse way, I think that's really good for us. It is a great lesson. And I actually asked, posed that question to uh, Greg Creech on, on my episode with him a couple episodes ago about uncertainty. And uh, he... I asked him the question what, how, at the end, I think I said, how, well, how do you think we're going to do? Are we going to, when we get at the other side of this pandemic, which I don't really know what that means really, or <laughs> what that looks like, but when we get to the other side of it, are we all going to be like better Buddhists and are even non-Buddhists going to really understand the, uh, the, the fact that certainty and the future were both illusory, you know, or, or are we just going to kick about like we always did? <laughs> I, I think he didn't have an answer for that. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> I'm not even going to touch that one. Okay. Um, I uh, mean, because uh, instead, you know, I mean, that would, that would contradict everything I'm writing about, Wendy. Yeah. Think the, you know, thinking about the future. Exactly. Um, I'm, you know, I'm advocating that we, that we use this time to, to try to stay in the present more, to try to focus on living right in the moment and not thinking much about the future or the past. Cause you know, those are, those really are just illusions. The past is gone. The future doesn't exist yet. So what do you have left? The present moment. And, you know, it brings up this, I, this phrase that I heard your pal Noah Rochetta mention in a, in a podcast, radical okayness. I think he has a whole episode dedicated right. to that in a secular Buddhism podcast. And, um, you know, it's really kind of a radical idea, like, hence the name, radical okayness. But like, you know, it just, it doesn't mean like being numb to big changes or, or to loss or anything. It's simply like taking everything in stride and being mindful to it. You know, it's, um, and, you know, just accepting the ups and downs with a kind of okayness. Um, it's, it's a very sort of uh, un-American way of thinking in some ways, because we're so focused on the future and, and everything. It reminds me of... Um, when I was in university in uh, Santa Cruz, California, I had this professor who uh, was talking about the way Buddhist monks make mandalas and they spend days, weeks, months creating this beautiful thing. 
And then he said, you know, and then at the end, when they're finished with it, they might look at it and admire it for a second. And then they just destroy it. And he asked the class, why do you think they destroy it? And one student raised his hand. He said, to perfect it, to do it again and perfect it. And the professor said, that is, that's, a, that's really the most American way of looking at that. Um, so it was quite interesting. So that, that sort of reminds me of, that's sort of a good metaphor for radical okayness of, of just, you know, it, just trying to exist and be okay with what comes at you. Um, yeah, you know, and it, 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 that wraps around, you know, sort of the whole, the whole Buddhist foundation, the Buddhist foundation of philosophy, right? Which is, you know, which are the three marks of existence, really. I put that as the Buddhist foundation of the Buddhist philosophical foundation. I mean, there are the Four Noble Truths and there are the Eightfold Path, but they're more about how to live. But underneath all that is the, is the, the, the reality that we see when we have right view which is the first of the Eightfold Path. And to me, it's, it's, it's the key. If we have right, right view, then um, right action and right speech and so forth come along in an easier way because we're able to have this right view. And the right view consists of the three marks of existence, which are impermanence, which is what, this is exactly what we're talking about. And these, the, the pandemic is like the sort of like the, the whack on the back of our heads to open us up to really living with the three marks of existence. And that is impermanence or anicca or uh, anicca. Anicca, yeah. And, and, and I, have, I have it tattooed on my arm. You do? You have anicca tattooed? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, no, isn't that funny? Okay. <laughs> we have to get to that story in a minute. And unsatisfactoriness or dukkha or suffering. And, I also uh, have that tattooed on my arm. And then, therefore, you have anatta on your arm, no self? No, that's probably going to be next, though. It better be. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and, and one of my personal favorite mantras uh, is that the good thing about this impermanence, which is one of the three marks, is just relax, because this too will change. In some ways, we tend to want everything to stay the same, right? Prior, pre-pandemic, we wanted everything to stay the same. Change was upsetting, which is probably why I was talking about why I don't like to travel. It's too much change. Um, and especially when things are good, we don't want anything to change. But with the pandemic, social unrest, and the inevitable evidence of climate change we're now living through, um, we've taught us, it's taught us that things do change. And right now things aren't very good. Actually, they're pretty awful. But the good thing is that things are impermanent, right? This too will change. Now, that is not looking to the future necessarily. It's just accepting the fact that this is just a moment in time and it, it will go out the back door as well. Yes, exactly. It's like a river, you know. It's in, so, Buddhism is so fascinating because all these concepts are so interlinked, you know, like, like anicca and impermanence is so, so goes right into the, the other Buddhist concept of, of, of um, no self and emptiness. You know, you can't have... Right. You can't have the concept of emptiness and no self without, without impermanence and without suffering or dukkha. So it's fascinating to me. It's like they're all, they're all working with each other. Um, and it's, it's really, I love it, actually. Yes, um, it's, it's brilliant. It's like I, I always said, I always say to myself when I was, excuse me, first learning Buddhism, it's like, who thought of this? 
<laughs> Who thought of this, right? I, I guess it was the Buddha. We don't know, right? We, 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 we honestly don't know. I mean, I, we, see it in the, we see it in his original sutras and um, from the Pali and, and where he taught these things. But, you know, like, just like in Christianity, this stuff was written after the fact. Yeah, exactly. So, so we, we don't know, we don't, but it doesn't really matter. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't really matter at all. Um, so this also, <coughs> excuse me, um, we got to move to this unscripted responsiveness. <coughs> excuse me. And back to the metaphor of dancing. Since you use the metaphor of dancing in your article and again, talking today, then I think it's very fair of me to ask how you are dancing. How are you <laughs> personally incorporating the dance of the pandemic, the unscripted responsiveness in your life? I'm dancing on unemployment checks. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm, I've, I've just been, um, been reading a lot more Buddhist philosophy and, you know, I should be out in the world traveling and eating and so on because that's what I do for a living. But yeah, I'm just, um, hanging around my apartment in my neighborhood and uh, reading a lot, drinking a lot of coffee. And, and that's really about it. Um, but th this idea of the dance kind of appealed to me because um, by accident, uh, I, have, I have kind of, I feel like when I look back at my life, I feel like I've sort of always been dancing or as an adult anyway, because I, I just decided that when I was in college that I, I didn't want to live this life. Not that there's anything wrong with this type of life, but I thought about my own father who, you know, lived this very sort of typical structured American life in the suburbs. He got married young, had kids, worked in an office all his life. He couldn't wait to retire. I just found some old letters from him. And, uh, and it was from the mid nineties. And in every letter, he kept going on and on about how he couldn't wait to retire. He had one more year left or two more years and he couldn't wait. And then, you know, as like back to the Alan Watts thing, Alan Watts suggests, you know, by the time you, finally get meet this goal of you retire and you have free time, you have time to dance. You, you might not be like in the best condition for dancing. So right. I decided when I was in college that um, I was going to try to live a life. I didn't know what it was, but I was going to try to live life on my own terms as much as possible. And that meant kind of not like not having a life like my dad did. So I eventually kind of figured it out what I wanted to do, which was being a food and travel writer and it kind of has allowed me to live life on my own terms because I, I don't have a boss. I can live anywhere I want in the world. Um, and, you know, I can kind of do anything I want. I can go out to lunch on a Tuesday and have a couple drinks with a friend and not have to worry about going back to the office or whatever. So, um, so you know, I kind of, I find for me personally, like the dance is living life on your own terms. Yeah. And, and, and so... I, I, there, there's an undercurrent and, and, uh, that I'm hearing in your narrative about your life that it's almost like, hey, the pandemic didn't shake me at all because I've always sort of lived with this change. It did, yeah, that's true. And, you know, a few years before, like, I, I went through a really rough time. Like, my, my father died. Um, I had the unexpected end of a long romantic relationship that just kind of came out of nowhere. And um, and I think in a weird way that sort of 
prepared me because like, you know, if you would have asked me, you know, a year before all that happened, what's the most certain thing in your life? I'd say, oh, I'm going to marry this woman and, you know, she's going to be with me the rest of my life. And then suddenly one day she wasn't. And so, um, so I think this kind of idea of, of certainty and, and rather being living a life, being aware of the fact that, that life is completely uncertain and really etching that into my soul really helped prepare me for the pandemic. You know, when the lockdown happened, people were really kind of panicking and, and I was, you know, I was nervous and I was being safe and, and everything, but I also was just sort of um, a little bit more relaxed for some reason. And it, it even surprised me. Yes. And especially, you know, we, we need to point out that you live in New York city. Yeah, exactly. When, where it was really bad in, in March and April. Um, yeah, they, it was like ground zero for, well, the ground zero was that little place in California where the, where, where the, 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 the long-term care facility or whatever, but the, where it really hit was New York City. And, and so to live in that, uh, that, that was beyond uncertainty. That was like, like terror for most people. It's amazing. Yeah, and it was startling. Like when I would walk to the supermarket once a week, I'd ha- I have to walk by a hospital and out, out in front of the hospital suddenly appeared these um, refrigerated trucks for storing dead bodies because they didn't have enough room in the hospital. And so I would see that, you know, once or twice a week and it would just be this jolt of like, whoa. And, and so, the, you know, that itself is a Buddhist practice. You know, the, 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 we talk about, uh, you know, the, the sitting, uh, meditating on the charnel grounds. You know, you've heard of that in Tibetan Buddhist yes. practice. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and where these the charnel grounds were actually in 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 uh, ledges of mountains in 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 tibet in nepal and um they would throw the dead bodies there and 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 they would you know carry uh, carrying birds you know hawks vultures whatever they whatever they have in tibet would come down and you know scrape the bones clean and uh this is really depressing, but, uh, but, but, but um, you know, it was taught that to, to sit there and meditate, or in other words, to watch what happens to our bodies, what, what is the eventual end of us, um, is, is a way of, of finding um, equanimity, which is, is a key to, is, is a key goal if you it, you know i try not to use the word goal in buddhism ever yes but it, exactly it, it's 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 a thing that we we know it's a we, direction it's a direction to aim at right and we know we maybe our practice has to produce some fruit if we feel more um more equanimity in situations that where we wouldn't have before and so what i'm hearing from you is that you sort of were almost prepared for this because you did not freak out, even walking past those refrigerated trucks. Yeah, exactly. And also, like, I, I've never really been averse to death. Um, I used to volunteer at a hospice um, when I was in my 20s in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And I would, um, my, my job was a friendly visitor to the dying. Wow. Um, because when I, w- when I was in, in high school, a friend died in a car accident. And I saw that, like, family friends of the girl who died, they kind of, they couldn't handle grief. They couldn't handle seeing the family grieve and they kind of disappeared because yeah. they just couldn't handle it. And I was like, that's, you know, I was like, oh my God, I, I, you know, that's amazing to me. So I started volunteering 
as a friendly visitor of the dying at a hospice. And they often would say to me, you know, I'm so glad you're here because, um, because all my family and friends, like they don't visit me as much as they used to because they don't know, they're not really prepared with grief as most of us in the West are not. And then, you know, I just found that so fascinating. And then later on in life, I went to Varanasi and wrote an article about um, how I spent two weeks on the banks of the Ganges River at the cremation ghats. Yes. Um, hanging out with the guys who, who, whose low caste condemns them to, 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 as their occupation to, to burn bodies, you know? Right, um, right. So, so I spent two weeks just watching bodies burn. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and I'm I'm linking that article um, to our show notes too. That's the one you sent me, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, I think that's fascinating, and see, I, I'm learning so much because everybody has such a different uh, a different experience with what's happening. It's like that one of the one of the uh, um, recent podcast I've done, it was, you know, we may all be in uh, the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. And uh, we all have so many different reactions to, to this experience. And, and I, I've been amazed when I can not react and can just watch as sort of like a, a sociologist or something, you know, um, mm -hmm. wa watch all the different reactions to uh, the pandemic. I mean, just just watching the divisiveness and, and so forth about the maskers and the anti-maskers and the, the the deniers and the this and the that, um, but also how people respond in their day-to-day -day life. You know, some people uh, try to pretend everything's the same. Some people, you know, they'll, they, you know, they put on their masks, they do all the, th all the safe things, but they keep going to the store the same amount of time. They keep doing everything the same. And, and, and then there are other people, you know, have been, you know, pretty much sheltered in place either through fear or, or through knowing that they are at a higher risk group or, or whatever. And that their whole lives have been turned upside down and, and and I and, and there and I talk to people like that and there some of their reflections are very different. Some of them are bitter, uh, and 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 some of them are like, well, this has been um, unbelievably peaceful. Um, so so it's like uh, it's it's almost like uh, you know I've heard uh, this whole pandemic experience be referred to as mass trauma, which indeed I think it is. But I also think it's um, it's a mass meditation, right? <laughs> Mm -hmm. Where we were, well, we're being forced to look at things. Now, not everybody's doing that. I, I granted, but we are being forced to it to look at things, whether or not people are going to do it or not. But, but your your story is amazing, and I'm glad we were able to share that. Um, what is I mean, it doesn't make me a better person because I was calmer during it. You know, like a spider could crawl up on my leg right now, and I would freak out. <laughs> well, most people would just flick it off, you know, or a bear. I am totally afraid of bears because they're they're marauding, godless killing machines. Um, and while another person would just be like, "Oh, it's just a bear, calm down." So you know, I just happened through, because I I think I had these experiences in the past, and maybe meditation and maybe Buddhist philosophy sort of helped me prepare for this one moment. Yeah, I mean, who exactly? I mean, who knows? Like everyone always says, you know. It's, Everybody, you know, this is what 
people have a misconception about karma. You know, karma is really just uh, uh, the action resulting from different causes and conditions or, the, or the, the result of different causes and conditions, some of which you bring on yourself, some of which just happen to you. Um, and, you know, if I, I, one thing I always do to try to be non-judgmental about other people and their reactions, and, and especially during this pandemic time when I get mad at, you know, non-maskers, anti-maskers and so forth, is to, is you have, you have to look at their lives and say, you know, they had X, Y, Z experience in their lives. You know, they were born as a little baby and then this happened to them and this happened to them and this happened to them. And if all of those things happened to me exactly the same way, I would be them, Right. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I would be them. Um, and, and that's karma. Everybody's karma is different and we're going to react to situations differently. And, and, but I, I think that's one of the reasons why I want to have other people on this podcast, because I think it's very helpful to hear other people's experience of this rather than just mine, um, because we're all here doing this stuff. Um, this, and it, you know, it does remind me of what, um, Stephen Batchelor, you know, he wrote in the confessions of a Buddhist atheist that, um, mm -hmm. He, he said, uh, I'm going to quote part of it, but I, part of it I'm not sure of, I, cause, but I remember a lot of this because I have talked about this before, but to live on, he talked about living on this shifting ground, okay, and which is essentially where we are, but like you said, we were, we were ignorant or we, de we denied that our ground was shifting. We thought everything was the same all the time, right? Everything was sure. Um, but he, he, he talks about how if to live in this way, we need to stop obsessing about what has happened before and what might happen later. And that's about sort of this eternal now, this sort of this lack of time or pandemic time or lack of future that we're living in. And what that m means is we have to be more, extremely more conscious of what is happening now. And that doesn't mean we deny our past, like you don't deny those things that happened to you, the, your death of your father, the failing relationship. We don't deny that we may have a future here, <laughs> but it's, it's really about being in a different relationship, you know, with the impermanence and of life instead of, you know, exactly. like, instead of, you know, being obsessed with the past. So I wished everything could be the same way or speculating about what if, how's this going to end? You know, if you ever, you know, um, scroll through Reddit someday or, or, um, or, uh, or um, uh, uh, what's the other one? Quart. Oh, what's the name of that one with the Q? QAnon? Yeah. No, not, not uh, QAnon. No, not QAnon. No, it's Q, Q, 4chan. No, 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 not QAnon and 4chan. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a forum. Um, I forget now, but everybody will, will know. And I don't mean QAnon because we don't want to go there. Um, but, <laughs> no, <we don't. laughs> um, but uh, Quora, Quora. Um, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Where people ask questions about things and other people answer who consider themselves experts. Although most of the time I don't, think they are um so but if you scroll through either one of those like open public forums like quora or 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 uh, reddit and you keep the, the same question keeps getting answered asked them how's this pandemic going to end when's this pandemic going to end you people want to there's want somebody to speculate about it and tell them and then they'll feel better about it right that's sort right. of like that speculation of the future that uh stephen bachelor talked 
talked about. And when you do either of those things, like, oh, I wish it could be like that, or I wonder how it's going to be, then we're not at all seeing the fruit of what, what is now, which is the germ of what will be. That's what I remember about his quote. The fruit of what has been is the now, and that's the germ of what will be. And we need to see that in our now. Um, and it's just like you said uh, about there's this spec, there's this sort of um, weird sort of thought that Buddhists are these peaceful meditators and they're all blissed out. And um, but uh, the Buddha didn't encourage withdrawal like into a timeless mystical now, which is sort of like spiritual bypassing, but more like a in your face, you know, kind of unflinching encounter with whatever the contingent world is happening moment to moment. Yeah, exactly. There's, um, I just put on like my Instagram a few weeks ago, a quote by Jack Cornfield, yeah. where he says something very similar to that Stephen Batchelor quote, where he says like, you know, we're, we're planting, it's fit, this is a fitting quote from someone named Jack Cornfield because he talks about planting seeds. <laughs> and, you know, he says, you know, we might plant a seed now. We might not even be around to see the result of it, but we're always like planting these seeds in this ground. And, you know, and Pema Chodron too all, talks a lot about groundlessness and the importance of realizing and being comfortable with shifting ground. And, and um, you know, yeah. that's always a revelation to me when I come across stuff like that and stop yeah. and really think about it. Yeah. Um, so is there anything else you want to share about, you know, unfortunately, I have to say, David, you, you, you weren't talking about what you were doing to make yourself feel better because you were feeling okay all along. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, I've had my moments of being down a little bit, but, um, but you know, I would have been felt that way without the pandemic anyway, probably. So. Yeah, so, so you've sort course. of been my dud first guest. No, no offense. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, thank no. you. No, you know what I'm saying. I, I was, you know, I was, I was looking for like somebody's magic bullet, how they got overcame like the, 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 the angst of the pandemic, but you had very little angst. And that's just exciting to me that there are people out there who are like that. That's great. Right. But I, I really like took, you know, as they say, took refuge in the dark. Awesome. Even more so when the pandemic happened too, you know, like I, I really leaned into it. I was already quite invested but I leaned into it even more so you know because I just I want I wanted to I didn't want to freak out um, yeah so like you were like uh like stubborn about it I'm not going to freak out <laughs> no I didn't even say that I was just like just calm and you know just be calm and and don't think about the future too much because that's ridiculous like like even you know even today on the news they said that you know the the entire world might not actually get vaccined from coronavirus until 2024. If there's like a double, double injection virus. Right. And, you know, so it's like, you know, if you, if you start projecting when this is going to be over and life's going to get back to quote normal again, you'll just drive yourself crazy because then you'll see these, the news and they're saying, Oh, maybe that'll happen then. No, no, it'll be a bit longer. It'll be a bit longer. Yeah. And you're, you're setting yourself up for a disappointment. It's kind exactly. of like, well, you mentioned earlier how you don't like, like to use the word goal. If you, if you have a goal, you're possibly setting yourself up for a disappointment. Instead, if you have a direction, then you're just moving in that direction at the pace that you want to go. And there's no, not necessarily like a finish line 
for you to either finish or not finish, be disappointed or be happy about. So that sort of circles us back to the beginning. You just answered the question. Then it's the journey then. <laughs> I guess, but as long as you dance on the way. <laughs> yeah, okay. You know, I, uh, I, I was going to share a little bit of information that I, I mentioned that I, I would share this later. Um, I was, I, uh, someone that reached out to me, she's a, she's a writer for Glassdoor. Um, her name is Eileen Honigman Meyer. And, and she's, she's reached out to me a few times for, for just, you know, sort of a different type of quote uh, that would help somebody. And she, since Glassdoor is much more of a, you know, career and employment sort of um, publication, it's usually about stuff like that. But she she takes a softer side of things and she's reached out to me before. So she was right, preparing to write this article uh, um, called Reclaiming Your Balance as the Kids Head Back to School. And she reached out to me about, you know, some of the ways in which you could possibly reclaim your balance. And um, I was going to share a little bit about what I wrote because I think it's a, I think it's very is very helpful um, since since it's been helpful for me to look at things this way. Um, so I, I wrote, "We live in confusing times. Don't expect clarity. There is nothing about these times that can be figured out." Absolutely, which is sort of referring to you about like when the pandemic is going to end. When are we going to get a vaccine? So our individual, back to my quote, our individual worlds are dancing with the uncertainty of the whole world to the pandemic's beat. We can't hear the beat and we can't anticipate the next move. No step you take, no decision you make is sure to be the right one because the foundation of everything is uncertain. So it's good to remember that any action you take is the right one because you took action. Yeah, you wrote that? I, yes, I wrote that. Oh, excellent. That's great. <laughs> I wrote that. He's Mr. <laughs> Surprise. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I wrote that because, you know, that's what helps me. Um, I, I, you know, I've, I was guilty of the same thing. I think a lot of people that doom scrolling behavior we all did in March, April, and May. You know, um, mm -hmm. look, looking for the, the next tweet, the next this, the next that that was going to answer all our questions. And you know, sooner or later, we all had to realize, or I think most of us had to realize that that was not helpful in any way at all. Um, and there was something that clicked in me to the, that when I knowing that there was no clarity, this was utter confusion, and that, okay, you can relax in that too, right? You can just relax, yeah. relax in utter confusion. Because, you know, sometimes, you know, you, it's, like, it's like holding hope and despair in both hands, one hope in one hand, despair in the other. You know, you can, you can, you can wake up in the morning and be absolutely terrified, like, of all of this stuff. And then you can take a walk and listen to the birds and just that. And then you realize, you know, right this minute, I'm, I'm happy. I'm peaceful. Exactly. Right. Yeah, it's, it's just, I think it's for a lot of people, it's hard to get used to the idea of, of not having as much self-control in your life as you did, because there are these larger forces in this case, the pandemic that 
are in control of the world right now. Um, and that's, I think that's for a lot of people, for most of us, that's really difficult, you know? Um, do you know that there's this Rumi poem? There's this great, Rumi comes up all the time. It's for a Sufi mystic, especially in Buddhism. Yeah, I love funny, Rumi. But, um, he has this great short poem where he says, um, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field, I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down on the grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. And I just, I love the idea of this field that he imagines because it's like the, the radical absence of control and confronting our, our terror of uncertainty. You know, we, we give names to things. We, we create boxes and brackets and categories because concepts. we're just so, yeah. yeah, and concepts. And we're just so afraid of the terror of uncertainty and emptiness. Um, and I think that's what Rumi's kind of speaking about there. It is, and I love—I absolutely love that poem, and I am a huge Rumi fan, so yes, again, we have synchronicity, um, but, um, you know, I think that's it, I, and, that, and that, that does circle us back around to, to the three marks of existence and, and maintaining right view. Um, <clears throat> emptiness has such a negative sound because it, it, it sounds like, uh, it sounds like um, everything is empty. Um, but as uh, uh, it, everything isn't empty, everything is full of possibility. It's only our concepts that put things in a box, right? If we have a yes. concept of what something is, then that's, ex that's all it can be, right? This even applies to relationships and everything. If we have a concept that someone, that someone is this way, and then when they act outside of the way we think that was, then then we didn't allow them to be something else, right? Um, exactly. uh, well, my, my Dharma grandfather, that's my, my teacher, Reverend Koyokobose, and the founder of Bright Dawn uh, Oneness Buddhism, his father, Reverend Gyome Kobose, who founded the, the, fir, uh, the first Buddhist temple in the med Midwest in the 40s, the Chicago Buddhist Temple, um, soon after he was released from imprisonment, in the great Japanese internment, he 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 moved to to Chicago from um, being in the camps, um, and he uh, founded the Chicago Buddhist Temple. And he wrote a few books. And one of my favorite lines that he had is, um, "We tend to put a period on everything." And that just means we tend to want to put everything in a box, conceptualize it and say, this is it. But then he goes on to say, but everything is one thing, every, but every day it's one thing after another. Period. Mm. That, you see, no period. Every day is one thing after another. So mm -hmm. I think that's helpful if, if in having that. Um, so David, is there anything else that I missed that you would like me to ask you about or? No, I don't think so. I think that was, it was great. It was really okay. Good. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me, David, as to be the very first guest on how you're handling the pandemic. This, I, I had so much fun talking to you about it and, um, we'll talk again soon. Thanks again. Thanks. It was a great pleasure. Thanks again to David Farley for joining me for this podcast. I feel so lucky to meet all these fascinating people as a host of this podcast. And it includes you, the listener. 
And don't forget, I'm looking for input from Everyday Buddhism podcast listeners. I've received a few emails, but would love to hear from more of you about how you are coping. Where have you found support? What are some of your resilience-building practices or activities that you've incorporated in your lives that have helped you walk through these troubled times? Please email your insights or comments to wendyshinyo at everyday-buddhism.com. That's W-E-N-D-Y-S-H-I-N-Y-O, all strung together, lowercase, wendyshinyo at everyday-buddhism.com with the subject line, How I'm Coping. I will reach out to schedule a time to talk with you, then possibly schedule a podcast interview with you and a few other listeners, sometimes in group, sometimes solo. So I look forward to hearing from you. So that's it for this episode. And as a reminder, don't forget that there are many ways to join me and others in either the private donation-supported Everyday Sangha that meets every other week virtually on Thursday evenings at 7.30 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time through Zoom or our free public open Sangha, which will now be held every month virtually on Wednesday evenings at 7.30 p.m. on Zoom, through Zoom, with Levi Shinyo-sensei. And until next time, keep finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better. <music>